Welcome everybody watching my live stream. We're very honored to have you this morning. If you're first time watching us on Elevate, we really appreciate you and we want to know that you are valued. And then all of our Elevate family that are not able to join us, we still want to let you know that we love you, we are for you, and we miss you. You can be a two-minute missionary, all of you live streamers and everybody here. You can go on a mission trip for two minutes. Go to your Facebook and share the stream. You share the stream, send it out to somebody, put it on your wall, whatever, but share the stream and you can be a two-minute missionary. Awesome stuff. So we're talking about the birth of Jesus. In case you didn't know, it's Christmas time. (laughs) We've seen the turkey and now it's time to see the tree. And we're gonna do a series called The Sun is Given. Now my approach, I hope, I pray, is to Uh, You know, a lot of times Christmas series can be light, they can be fluffy, they can be all those things, and those are good, those are good things. I just felt like the Lord was inclining me to go a little deeper in the study of uh, Christmas. So we're going to be doing the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, a son is given. Uh, The birth of Jesus is an intentional challenge to intellectual idolatry found in our culture. First of all, like what's intellectual idolatry? When man begins to hold up what he believes or what he thinks as the highest part. What I think is, is the highest goal of my life. And there are things that God does in the scripture and he does them on purpose to intentionally challenge the intellectual idolatry and the intellectual stronghold that people have. And one of those things is the birth of Jesus. Inevitably, this time of year, this is not only where Christianity is sort of exposed to the world or brought forth more in a more vocal way is usually Christmas time and Easter, but also it's this time of year where the critics begin to abound. You know, oh, Jesus was born of a virgin. I mean, we haven't taught this stuff. We haven't taught it effectively. And you can tell because the way that people even profess Christ, the people that actually believe that Jesus was born of a virgin among the quote unquote people who say they're Christians has actually gone down. And then they say there are people who don't believe that Jesus is God anymore, and they say they're Christians. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not a Christian. Because if you're not, first of all, you're not a believer, and you're not saved. Jesus isn't a good man. He is God come down. He is, God, he is the God man, right? He died for you. And without Christ's deity and without Christ's humanity, you're not saved. Jesus is not the one among many. He's the one and only. It's important to know that. And so the birth of Jesus is an intentional challenge to man's intellectual idolatry. And there's lots of it in our world. Mankind worships reason and thoughts. And when man worships his reason and thoughts, he limits his perception to the physical world. And the Lord directly challenges that. God's not looking for intellect. He's looking for faith. What we think and what man thinks is that I have to understand it and then I have to believe it. That's not the way the scripture reads. That's not even how you're created. What happened when man fell is he went from a being that lived by faith and was moving from his spirit. Sin flips us upside down, and now we no longer live from our spirit. We live primarily, if you really want to know how low we are, from our bodies. And then if our body isn't in charge, the next thing that's in charge is our mind, our will, and our emotions. In spirit, well, that's somewhere out over here, but that's not how we were created, and that's not how we're supposed to live as Christians. As Christians, we are to be led by the Spirit. Those that are led by the Spirit, these are the what? The sons and daughters of God, right? So sons and daughters of God are led by the Spirit. They're not led by their emotions. They're not led by their thinking. They're, not, they're led by the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean your thinking isn't important. It doesn't mean that your emotions aren't important. But your thinking and your emotions are to subordinate themselves to the truth of God. And so what happens is, is that we exalt what we think and because we actually believe that what we think can disqualify truth. So we, we believe that, well, if I don't think it's true, then it must not be true. Truth exists whether you believe it or not. Truth is real whether you believe it or not. Your belief has nothing to do with truth. We are called to believe truth, and we're called to pursue truth, and we're called to engage in faith even if we don't understand it. God's not expecting you to understand. There's a guy here, he got saved, and uh, he hung out with Christians for like ever, and he never gave his life to Christ, and so they would all come to me, and they're like, you know, we've been hanging out with this guy for two years. This guy's a fake. He's a phony. You know, he's just acting like he wants to be around Christians, but he's not a believer, and so I take the guy to lunch, 
at KB's old restaurant, Lost and Found. So we go to Lost and Found Saloon, and we're sitting down at Lost and Found Saloon, and I'm asking the dude, I'm like, so what, what's the story here? You know? And he goes, well, I just feel like, you know, Jesus is like the fairy tales. He's like the Easter bunny, and he's like Santa Claus and all this other stuff. And so after about an hour of this conversation, I said, so what does your heart tell you? And he says, my heart tells me that this is real, but my head, I can't get my head around it. And that's when I told him, I said, you believe in your heart, not in your mind, dude. You know, faith doesn't come from the mind. Faith comes from the heart. And he's like, so you're telling me I can believe and give my life to Jesus and not understand all of this. I said, absolutely. Understanding comes later. The only thing you're given to understand if you're an unbeliever is that you're lost, you can't save yourself, and you need to be born again. And if you reject that, well, then you're really lost. That's the only thing most people can understand. That's the only thing they're given to understand. The gospel that is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whom the God of this world has blinded their eyes. So like I had a guy, and he gives, so he ends up going, well, I can do that. If you're telling me that that I can give my life to Jesus and I don't have to understand everything, he's like, I can do that. I'm like, well, let's go. You know, guy gets saved right there at Lost and Found Saloon, all over, over a hamburger or whatever it was. One of KB's famous plates of nachos was, uh, I don't know what we were eating, but still, nonetheless, you don't have to believe, you don't have to understand in order to believe. It goes like this. We get on airplanes, right? I told first service, you get on an airplane, you don't understand lift and thrust, you don't understand the laws of physics, you don't understand jet engineering and jet propulsion, you have no clue what jet propulsion is. You have no clue what, how much thrust it takes to lift that plane off the ground. You have no clue. You don't understand, uh, what is it, nautical miles, do you? The, the pilot is, is navigating by nautical miles. Do you want, is there anybody here? There might be, a, we, had a, um, <laughs> we had a Coast Guard guy in first service. He's like, I understand nautical miles. Well, of course, man. You understand nautical miles, but the pilot is governing the flight of that plane by nautical miles, and you believe he knows what he's doing. If you didn't, did you, anybody ever meet the pilot? Did you go to the pilot and you do a checklist? Just let me get this straight. How many log hours do you have? Let me tell you, you know, you're not interviewing the pilot before you get on the plane, yet you believe that guy knows what he's doing. You get on that airplane and you believe that that plane's going to take off and take you where you need to go, but you don't understand a thing about what you're doing. You have no clue. You don't understand how, what, you don't understand anything about the pilot. You don't understand how, how the plane flies. You don't understand the, the, the navigation mechanics. You don't understand anything about the, the laws of physics that are required to carry the plane forward. You know nothing, yet you believe it. Because if you didn't believe it, you wouldn't get on the plane. Well, I have to believe, I have to understand something before I believe it. That's nonsense. It's total nonsense. You can believe in Christ and not understand a thing. He never told you to understand. We, understanding comes on the backside of faith. That's very important. We do not get understanding on the front end of faith. We get understanding on the backside of faith. You have to give your life to Christ. People say, I believe it when I see it. No, you have to believe it and then you'll see it. That's the only way it works. And if you can't bring yourself to that, then there's, you got a problem. Mankind worships reason, reason and thought. And because of that, that's what keeps him from God. That's why the virgin birth is intentional. Jesus could have came any other way, right? But he chose a way that was foolish to men. God has chosen the foolish things of this world, 1 Corinthians 1. He's chosen. It's God's idea to do the foolish things in order to confound the wise because man thinks he knows everything. We think we know everything. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah? Explain this. Again, I told first service we were talking about that as I was sharing this, and I have these people around me, and they want to try to explain evolution and life science to me and all of this stuff. And I don't even, I mean, I have like basically three questions. And if you can answer those three questions, then we'll further the conversation. Question one, I always ask them, explain the sun. Explain the sun to me. Do you know why? Because the sun is a hydrogen and helium. It is a fusion reaction. It is physically impossible. It, you can combine hydrogen and helium, but it is extremely unstable. You, it does not, you cannot keep hydrogen and helium in a composite form. and can, you just, It's just impossible. So all these guys that think they're brains, I'm like, explain that fusion reaction that I see every, every morning off the eastern sky. They can't explain it. But they want to explain life science to me. And they want to explain how we evolved. And I said, okay, so we come from a primordial soup. Yes, where did the primordial soup come from? Well, we don't know. Like, dude, something doesn't come from nothing. It comes from a creator. The only one who possesses the ability to bring something from nothing, his name is God. 
And it's the Hebrew word bara. He can do that. Fusion reaction, second thing, is the seed. Explain the seed to me. Can't do that either. Don't care who you are. Naturalist. They can't explain a seed. A seed is a physically dead property. There is no life in a seed whatsoever. It's dead. Yet, and I've seen it with my own eyes, they took seeds from Pharaoh's tomb, planted them in the Louvre, and now we have papyrus growing in Pharaoh's tomb. Seeds that are thousands of years old, completely dead, slap it between two paper towels, and all of a sudden life comes. How is that possible? I've been saying this for years. I've yet to have someone send me an email going, I can explain the seed. You can't. You can tell me what the seed does, but you can't tell me what the seed is, and you can't tell me why it does it. You can tell me what it does, but you can't tell me why it does it. You can tell me what the sun does, but you can't tell me what holds it together. It can't be replicated. It can't. God puts it right off the sun and says, explain that. Geniuses, oh, wise man, you know? What's that? Explain that. The third thing is when people talk about evolution, I always talk to them about, uh, I always talk to them about amino acids. We come from monkeys. I'm like, do we? Do we? Is that what we do? We come from monkeys? Yeah, Uncle Bill was a monkey, orangutan. So we come from monkeys. Who told you that? You cannot take the amino acids of a man and put them in the monkey, the monkey dies. You cannot take the amino acids of a, monkey and, a man and put them in a monkey, the monkey will die. You take amino acids from a monkey, put them in a man, the dude drops dead. You put the amino acids of a man and you put them in a monkey, the monkey dies. Which means what? We are not from the same species. Amino acids are the foundation of life. It's where all protein comes from. I can take male, I can take human amino acids into me, nothing happens. But I can't take amino acids from an ape and put them into myself or I'm going to die. Amino acids is the beginning of all life. All life begins there. That's the argument they'll come off of. You come out to say, look, we come off this argument. Yes, amino acids are the building blocks of life. All life begins with amino acids. Yes. So why aren't the, if, we, if I come from an ape and I'm evolved from a monkey, why aren't my amino acids similar to the ape? And they'll say, well, it's a transitional form. You see, there was a, it was leaping evolution. So evolution just leaped. It takes more faith to say evolution leaped than it does to say that God created me fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says there are five different types of flesh, and one of them is man. Man was created distinct from all other animals, completely distinct and unique. We didn't come from monkeys. Who told you that? I, had a, I was sitting in, a, I think it was Jackson Memorial Hospital, and I just couldn't resist. I was sitting, I was visiting someone, so I'm eating, and these two doctors are sitting down. I don't even know, it must have been divine, but I shut them up. Not because I'm trying to shut somebody up, but this guy's talking about, you can't tell me, you know, evolution. He's trying to just, like, these two young guys are sitting there talking, and he's explaining, like, how evolution is absolutely true. And he's like, I know all the science on evolution. Anybody that says evolution isn't true is an idiot. I looked over at him. I said, hey, can I say something to you? Go, maybe you can help me with this because I don't understand this. I said, why, why, aren't, why can't we combine amino acids if we're, if it, if we're he, couldn't, he couldn't answer it. Couldn't, he's, he, yet the guy that's sitting right next to me, these two dudes in the green scrubs, sitting next to me and the guy's trying to say how true and how absolutely factual evolution is. I'm like, really? You can't even explain it in its most basic form. Which is, the, which is the level of protein. You can't. It's a fact. It just can't be done. Yet, people say that it's true. It's completely not true. Man worships what he thinks. The Bible says willfully denying the God who created them. Foolish things to the wise. He's rejected the things of the world, and, and God has chosen the things that are despised. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? The world despises you? A happy day. Jesus chooses you. That's, a good, that's good news, man. He takes the outcast. He takes the nothings and turns them into somethings. He takes the nobodies and turns them into somebodies. That's what Jesus does. He's not looking for the, he's not looking for the in crowd. He's looking for the out crowd. He's looking for the outcast. He takes the outcast. He takes the ashes and gives beauty for ashes. He's chosen this. And the things which men consider meaningless, the Lord chooses it to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human flesh, pride, or wisdom would glory in his presence. You know nothing. It's the beginning of wisdom. You know nothing. <laughs> you know nothing. I don't care what you think you know. In the eyes of Jesus, you don't know a thing. He'll use what you know, but you've got to submit it. For since the creation of the world, God's attributes are clearly seen. Man's heart is dark because he willfully chooses his heart to be dark. The attributes of God are through the qualities of who he is are clearly seen, and we can understand who God is by seeing what is made. 
We can look around and we can see that God, that, that this, this, this just, it didn't come from nothing. The beauty, the wonder, the air cycle, the life cycle, everything. God's a God of, God's a God of beauty. God's a God of wonder. God's a God of order. God's a God of systems. God's a God of seasons. The world itself tells us that there is a God. And it says that man can understand God, or at least have an acquaintance with him, by simply looking at creation, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that people are without excuse. There's no excuse. So the Bible says. There's no excuse. Well, I didn't know. You know it's, God's not going to accept any excuses. If you know there is a God, then you are obligated to pursue him and to find him out to be who the fullest that he is. Just that simple. Because although they knew God, so people are witnessed in their heart. They know there's a God. Children are not born atheists. They're taught to be an atheist. No child is born an atheist. You start talking to a kid about forever, and they understand forever. Right? Talk to a four-year-old and a five-year-old about forever, and they're like, forever. They understand forever. Adults don't understand forever, but that four-year-old understands forever. You start talking to them about God and about Jesus, they pick up on it real quick. Real quick. They're not born atheists. Where they're taught to be atheists. They're taught to be those things. The Bible says that man is without excuse. It says they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They became foolish and futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Man thinks that he's enlightened by denying that God exists. Man thinks he's enlightened by, by saying, oh, the only idiots believe in God. Forget God. Let's talk about Jesus. They'll, they'll go with the universal God. I'm going to tell you who God is. His name is Jesus. You believe in Jesus? 100,000%. Jesus freak. I'm president of the local chapter of Jesus freaks. 100%, all in on Jesus, all in. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darking, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Thinking themselves to be wise, they become fools. Height of stupidity. You know who the wisest people are? Heaven looks down and goes, those people are geniuses. Do you know who, they, you know who heaven celebrates as genius? Those who've given their life to Christ. That's right. If you've given your life to Christ, I don't care what your intellectual background is. In heaven's eyes, God considers you genius. He considers you wise. You are wiser than anyone else around you because you have done the right thing. You have seen what others cannot. You're a genius in God's eyes because you've given your life to Christ. Happy day. 1 Corinthians, for the Jews request a miracle. So he's telling us that man's heart is darkened because he wants it to be. Even though man understands, man rejects even the remotest knowledge of God and becomes a fool. And his heart doesn't grow lighter, his heart grows darker. When you push away from God, there is darkness, period, period. Christ is the light of the world. Now it tells us about, now Paul's gonna tell us here about two different ways of thinking, okay? So this isn't modern thinking, some of it is, but in the ancient world, there were basically two systems of thought. And they're referred to oftentimes in the Bible in this manner. So it says the Jews request a miracle. So there's a Jewish method of thinking. The ancient Jews, I'm not talking about the modern Jews, but the ancient Jews, they sell, their faith was mystical. right? They were looking for God in the now. They were looking for God's wonders and signs in the now. You see it repeatedly in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. They were looking for miracle. They were looking for wonder. They were looking for power. Right? And they wanted to encounter that so that they could understand God more. So they were more of a mystical mindset, God seekers. Then there's the Greeks. The Greeks want wisdom and proof. That's America. That's the Western United States. The Western United States is framed out of Greek thinking. Everything comes out of that line of thinking. We're taught that way. We want evidence and proof. It says, but we preach Christ crucified to both of them. We preach Christ crucified to the mystical seeker. He is the miracle of miracles. He is the sign and the wonder. And we preach Christ to the intellectual mind. He is the proof and the validation of God. That's what Paul says. We preach to both of them. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom and the proof of God. Jesus is. You can prove Jesus out. It's not an issue of proving him out. You can prove him out. Lots of people have gone to, gone to said, this is my life's mission. I'm going to prove Jesus wrong. And they're converted Christians now. Right? Many, many, many a person has done that. They either convert or completely go into some even darker place of denial. But most convert. 
You can pursue God and his knowledge is everywhere. The Bible says the rocks cry out. His testimony is in everything. You cannot escape him. And so what if people don't believe? This is another thing. So before we get into this, and the reason I'm saying this is because what I'm about to share with you is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Highly open to skeptics. So I want to talk to the skeptics before I ever show what this is all about. So the Bible says this. What if some don't believe? Romans 3. I love this. What are we going to do if people don't believe? I don't know. It means that, what does that mean? What if some don't believe? Would their unbelief make the truth and the faithfulness of God of no effect? Just because you don't believe it? Oh, I guess it must not be true then, right? I don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, I guess it's not true. Everybody call them up. We're surrendering the church. It's over. The virgin birth isn't real. So-and-so doesn't believe. Bible doesn't care if you believe. It's offering you the opportunity to believe. But the Lord, quite frankly, is indifferent. He's not trying to convince you. He puts it out there, and he lays the testimony out there, and he challenges you and calls you for it. It's called ekkaleo. It means the king summons you. The king is summoning you unto himself, and he's summoning you and commanding you to believe in something that you don't understand. That's the very thing that people can't do. They cannot subordinate their mind. They cannot subordinate their intellect to a belief that they know is true. Their heart believes it, but their mind cannot comprehend it. So rather than subordinating their mind to their heart, they eliminate the heart and continue to allow the mind to rule. Intellectual. Intellectual is important, but the mind does not serve the spirit. Or does the spirit does not serve the mind, the mind serves the spirit. That's important. My intellect is to serve the revelation of God. My intellect is to serve the knowledge of God. It's not the knowledge of God serves my intellect. Who told you that? Yet that's how we approach it. It's completely wrong. I subordinate what I know to the spirit of God. I subordinate what I know to the revelation of God. That's how it works. I subordinate what I feel to the truth of God. The truth of God never subordinates to my emotions. My emotions subordinates to his truth. That's how it's supposed to work. What if they don't believe? Oh, no. It says, let God be true and every man a liar. It's like you don't believe? Okay. It's too bad. I don't know what to tell you. You know, there is nothing else. This is the truth. Well, I want it differently. Oh, well, that's what he said to Israel. You're like children in the marketplace. I played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang songs and you didn't sing. We gave laments and you didn't mourn with us. What's Jesus saying? You wanted me to do something. You wanted me to dance to your tune. You wanted me to sing your songs and you wanted me to act like you wanted me to act. And because I didn't dance to your tune, sing your songs, or act the way you wanted me to act, you rejected me. That's what he's saying. Yet that's what we do. (laughs) Dance to my tune, Jesus. I don't dance to, I dance to Jesus' tune. Whatever Jesus' tune is, I'm in. Raise your hands, okay. Worship, sing, sing a song, okay. Whatever he says, I do, right? So I tell you guys, raising my hands, it's not Jesus, it's not my thing. I'm like, it's Jesus' thing. Do what he asks. Raise your hands. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. Hallelujah. It's not my thing. It's his thing. It's not about me. It's about him. He's not dancing to my tune. I'm supposed to dance to his. So let's dance to Jesus' tune. Whatever that tune is. I don't know. It doesn't matter. See, what you got to know is it doesn't matter if you, be, if you don't believe. It doesn't matter if people don't believe. God's not trying to convince you. He's declaring. That's what I just... One of the biggest things with the book of the Bible, it never explains God, it declares him. Genesis to Revelation, first, in the beginning, God. Doesn't explain him, just declares him. Last verse, lo, I come quickly and my reward is with me. Doesn't explain him, just declares him. He's coming again and he's coming with a reward. No explanation, there it is. In the beginning, God created, boom. No explanation, there it is. He's not, he's not explaining himself, he's declaring himself. And he's summoning you to his heart so that you might know him. We, we, we create this king and we treat him like trifles. He's a king. He's a great king. He's a loving king. And you're his sons and daughters. And you need to relate to him on that basis. You understand that? You need to elevate yourself to his status, but not lower him to yours. I don't lower him to my status. I elevate myself to the identity that he has placed upon me. I don't bring him down to where I am. I go up to where he is because I have a right And so I elevate myself. Did you see what we were praying here? What were we praying here? Oh, Lord, come down. Oh, God, just touch her. Oh, God, no, I am a daughter of the highest. 
It is my birthright, and I lay claim to my birthright. We elevate to the status that is ours. We don't bring Jesus down. We elevate to him. You got it? Never. It won't happen. This is how it works. You come up to him. It's my right by inheritance. I come up to where he is. So that, that being said, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. And so the birth of Jesus, Christmas is about a promise made, a promise affirmed, and a promise kept. God makes a promise, and he makes this promise in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it's the book of origins. You have the origin of the universe, the origin of complexity, the origin of solar system, the origin of the atmosphere, the origin of the biosphere, the origin of life, the origin of mankind, the origin of marriage, the origin of evil, the origin of sin, the origin of language, the origin of government, the origin of culture. I'm keep going. The origin of nations, the origin of religion, and the origin of God's purpose and plan for mankind. All in the book of Genesis. No book even comes close. No book even attempts to explain what Genesis lays out for you, for us. It is the foundation of all God's history, of all history is found in the book of Genesis. The foundation of all God's revelation is found in the book of Genesis. There are people who study Genesis and they can't get out of the first chapter. I'm not a guy who's been studying the first chapter of Genesis for 20 years in every way possible. Oh yeah, let's just do this. In the beginning, God, just take that verse. In the beginning, what's the, I mean, you too much, like, what, what's the, what does that mean? God, who is God? What does that mean? You know, created. He created. What did he create? What is that? Is that, you know, it's just, it, I was like, you've been in the book of Genesis for 20 years? And he showed me what he did. And I was like, like, wow. God creates man from the dust of the ground. This is Genesis. So this is the one you understand who this God is, right? So we, we who think we understand God. We, don't, we understand things about him. We can understand his nature through Christ, but there are depths of his nature that is only given to those who will be intimate with him. If you will not be intimate with Jesus, you'll never know him. Into me you see. If you will not allow him to see into you, and you will not take him up on the opportunity to see into him, you'll know nothing. As long as you treat Jesus like your bellhop and you hold him at a distance, you will never understand him. The Bible says, the people know my deeds. That's what he told Moses. But you, Moses, know my ways. There's a huge difference between knowing the ways of the Lord and knowing the deeds of the Lord. Right? His ways is what you want. You want to know him. You want to know his ways. That is a progression of trust. That is a progression of relationship. And that is a progression of intention. I've been telling people this lately. God will provide the opportunity and the resources to meet the opportunity, but he cannot and he will not provide the will or the determination. God will set a door. Let's just play it like off what I just said. God will set a door in front of you and invite you to come to know him, and he'll provide the resources for you to do that, the means by which you can get there. But he cannot provide the will, and he cannot provide the determination for you to get there. You must provide the will, and you must provide the determination. It's the same thing with destiny and calling. People ask God for destiny and calling. I was talking to a lady last night. She's been praying for something for years. Boom, right in front of her. Boom, the resources are attached to it. I said, God will open the door. As he, I'm like, he's opened the door. You can't see that he's opened the door for this opportunity. You can't see that he's resourced you to go through that opportunity. And I said, but God's not going to carry you over the threshold. He must provide the will, and you must provide the determination. The opportunity is there. The resources to meet that opportunity are there. But you must provide the will, and you must provide the determination. It's not just, oh, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing, Jesus. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's determination. That's a stick, a knife in your teeth, a rag on your head. That's the level of determination that it takes unwavering determination, street fight, alley fight, I'm going to get what God promised me determination. That's what it takes. God creates man from the dust of the ground. The first thing God does is God is outside of eternity. Okay. So God's not even the God of eternity. You really want your mind blown? He created eternity. So here's God outside of eternity. What does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? We don't know. He created eternity. So he creates himself a realm, right? He makes his own world, and he steps into his own world, a world that he made for himself. And then he populates it, angelic beings, angelic creatures. Then he creates another world, 
called time and space, which is an entirely different realm. He creates eternity. It's an eternal realm. There's no time, no measurement of time in eternity. And then he creates another world. This world was created intentionally with limitations. It's a world of time and space. Sun, moon, stars, planets, all of that, that's what he creates. He creates the substance. He creates the earth out of what? Out of the void. How did he create it out of the void? Somebody said it was the Big Bang. I said, no, Jesus said, let it be, and bang, it happened. That's the Big Bang, right? You want to know what the Big Bang is? Comes off of, let there be, bang, there it is. (laughs) Doesn't come from nothing, man. Comes from something. And so God creates the world. He creates the substance. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which means what? He creates the realm of time and space. What is he creating? He creates the heaven and the substance for the earth. He creates the realm, and then out of the substance and the realm, he begins to fashion it according to his design. This is his pattern. This is his way. He provides substance and means, and then he brings his intention. And so God creates the substance and the means for the earth. He creates the earth, forms everything. Then on day six, he creates man. Not on day one, he creates man on day six, distinct from all of the creation. People say man is his highest creation. I would argue it's the woman who's his highest creation. It's true. She is the exclamation point on the creation. She's the last created. Man wasn't the last created. The woman was the last created. She's the exclamation point. He signed his name with Adam, and he put an exclamation point on it with woman. Come on. Help me help you, ladies. Help me help you. (laughs) That's right. It's true. And so he creates the substance, makes man out of the dust of the ground, human clay. He squeezes him, squeezes man, breathes into man the breath of life, and man became a living being. There are 94 naturally occurring chemical elements in the earth. 94 naturally occurring chemical elements in the earth. Do you know how many naturally occurring chemical elements are in the human body? 94. Do you know when we figured that out? In the 20th century, God said, I've made you from the dust of the ground. The substance of the earth is from what I have made you. All 94 chemical elements are within the human body, exactly like God said. But man, being the genius, he couldn't figure that out until the 20th century. It's like, hey, Steve, did you look at this, Steve? Did you know that all of the chemical elements of the earth are found in the human body? Did you know that? It's been Genesis 1, bro, or Genesis 2. 94, all exist. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen being the most common. There are other, there's somebody said there's more chemical elements, but I don't even want to get into it. So if you want want to argue that with me, send me an email and I'll I'll shout it out with you. I'll argue that with you. Because I don't have time to argue it now. Because it's just like, there's semantics that go on with it, but this is what I just said is an absolute fact. Saying there's more than, more than 94 chemical elements. Yes, but they're considered half-lives. They don't live that long, so they're not, they, don't, they don't exist long enough for them to actually be considered to be an element. Yet they're in the periodic table and they're considered a part of chemistry. You know what I say? I say they're in me. And they're probably operating with the half-life. And when you're looking at my human body, just, I'm telling you that whatever, whatever God said is what it is. That's, that's a fact. If God said it's this way, the problem is with you. The problem is not with Jesus. He knows. It's you don't know. And the Lord God formed man. He breathed into man the breath of life. God breathed into man, ignites man's soul, so his soul comes alive. God creates a being. He puts his spirit in him. And when the spirit comes into man, the soul comes alive. What is that? The mind, the will, and the emotions. This is what happens when you become born again. You can see a direct connection to this. Man without Christ is spiritually dead. When you give your life to Jesus and you invite the Holy Spirit to come into you, the Spirit of God comes into you, and what does he do? He ignites the emotions. All of a sudden, you can think like you've never thought before. You can feel like you never felt before. You see colors that you didn't even know existed because you were spiritually dead and your emotions were not alive to the level that God will make them alive when his spirit comes inside of you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? When you get born again, it's like, what in the world and where am I at, right? It's yours anytime you want it. Christians lose the joy of their salvation. The Bible tells you to go back and get it. All of that life and that fullness and that joy and that just glowing sense of being alive 
He never took it from you. He never took it from you. It's yours. You left it on the road somewhere. You set it down. God never took that from you. Restore and renew the joy of your salvation. It's yours. God took away my joy. Who told you that? Well, you're a new born-again believer. Stick around. You're going to lose that joy. I hope I never do. I still have it. I still have it. It's not that it's not been a challenge along the way. It has. It's not that I haven't laid it down the wrong the way I have. And I've done it in ignorance. And I've cried out to God. And the Lord's like, what's your problem, Kevin? Put your bucket in the well. I dug you a well. Draw water. I didn't take the well from you. You just stopped drawing the water. The water's yours, Christian. It's not based on you. It's not based on what you did last night or yesterday. It's not based on that. It's based on a gift, a right of inheritance. It belongs to you. Anybody that tells you different doesn't know what they're talking about. They do not. He doesn't take it from you. Not now, not ever. That's a lie and it smells like smoke. Well, pastor so-and-so told me. Pastor so-and-so doesn't know what he's talking about. If I had the time, I would theologize. I love theology. We want to dance on theology, how much time we got. <laughs> You're looking at me going, not that long, Kevin. <laughs> so I'm saying, I'm trying to give, I'm giving, I was praying about this. I'm like, I'm going to be given some theological concepts, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it all apart, but I'm trying to keep it in the lane. So God creates man, breathes life into man. Man comes alive, living being. You can have it. If you don't know Jesus, you can have exactly what I'm talking about. You're biologically alive. You may have emotional life within you, but you do not have spirit life inside of you. That's zoe. That is the life that only God can give. There's bios, there's soma life, and there's, uh, and there's uh, emotional life, which is psyche. Psyche is the, uh, the life of the suke. The suke is the soul. The psyche is the life of the suke. But there's only one life that comes in the spirit, and it's called zoe. And zoe life only comes from God. And you can only get Zoe life through giving your life to Christ. And then what happens? Zoe life is imparted to you. That's what you feel. When you worship, it's the Zoe life of God moving in you. When you enter your destiny and you begin to call upon the Lord and you let the Spirit move, this Zoe life is what's moving in you. It's important. So God creates man and he plants a garden. Adam watches him plant a garden. He didn't create Eden. He planted it. <laughs> So Eden wasn't created, Eden, Eden was planted. So God went and got some trees, got a bunch of stuff, and he planted. And so Adam's standing there watching. Adam's created on the sixth day, Eden was created on the sixth day, and Eve was created on the sixth day. So he makes Adam, Adam's like kind of checking him out, and the Lord's planting the garden. Why? Because it was Adam's commission to plant and tend the garden. As my father does, so do I. I'm about my what? My father's business. He was to mirror what God was doing. You're going to plant a garden, Adam. Let me show you how to do it. You're going to tend a garden, Adam. Let me show you what he's talking about is propagation. You're going to propagate a kingdom, Adam. Let me show you how to do it. Then he creates the garden and he puts man inside of it, which is the word assigned. Adam had an assignment in the garden. Then he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he takes from Adam's side. Somebody said it was his rib. It's not his rib. The Hebrew word is the, is the, is the side chamber. He didn't take his rib. He took his, from his side chamber. What does that mean? I have no clue. I have no clue what it means for God to take from the side chamber. I don't know. But what we do know is that he probably took bone, because he's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, so he took bone, flesh, and blood. So he took bone, flesh, and blood from Adam, and he created, it's called a genetic transfer, transmission. It's actually a, a word for it, genetic transmission. So God took, which, which is what they use when they're making skin cells. So it's funny, because all three of the things that God took, blood, bone, and skin, can be replicated, right? Your skin cells can be grown. We can multiply skin cells. We can multiply blood cells. And we can multiply bone cells. Your bone cells will actually multiply. So it's interesting that God took from Adam the very things that life science will tell us can be grown or extrapolated. And so God takes these things and he extrapolates and he creates Eve. Two living beings, now a son and a daughter. Again, we have families, both with souls and spirits. You're like, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? It has everything to do with the birth of Jesus. It has everything. Because from this point, we need to understand not where we just come from, what's happened and why Christ had to come and why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He had to be born of a virgin. He could not be born any other way and still fulfill what God has intended him to do. 
the Lord, oh, I don't want to get into that. It's going to take me too much time. And so Eve is deceived by a serpent. I will say this because this is a complete fog where people don't understand this or even pastors don't teach this. It says the serpent, right? So we think it's this serpent in a tree because that's all the pictures we've seen from Bible studies. Eve, don't eat, do you need to eat the apple, Eve? Like, like that was what was going on. That was not what was going on. The Bible doesn't even use it. We get the word uh, serpent from the word nefesh, but it was actually, it's called hanefesh or the serpent. And what it was highly likely, and most probably it was an angelic being with a serpentine body. How do we know? We see this in all of the ancient writings, all of the ancient things. It was a hanefesh. And so the hanefesh, an angelic being that looked like a snake, came and talked to Eve. Well, why, so what's, why didn't Eve freak out? Because heaven and earth were one. Sin had not come and the two worlds had not divided, right? Heaven and earth were one. When Jesus comes back, guess what? Heaven and earth are going to be one. What's that look like? I don't know. This is the only world I've ever known. So if you wanted me to tell you, all I can tell you is what the Bible says it's going to look like, you know, because I've never known another world besides this one. And I don't know what that world looked like either, other than what the Bible tells me. But it does tell me the two worlds were one and that the father walked with them in the midst of the garden. So they saw the Lord walking with them, talking with them, sharing with them, communing with them. It was a common occurrence. And probably his world, is hot, without question, his world was around them. So they were in time and space, and eternity was swimming around them or moving around them. So they saw angels. So for Eve to see a Hanafesh or an angel that looked like a serpent, it wouldn't be anything unusual to her because she's seeing angels all day long. They go, oh, you're an interesting one. I've never seen one like you before. Oh, yeah. Got that right, sister. It's a malevolent spirit that personified itself through a serpent be- as a serpent being. He says to Eve, so I, I got to say this too because this is important. This is very important. This explains a lot. When God said to Adam, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The writing in the Hebrew says, when you do this, if you do this, in dying, you will die. When you do this, Adam you will experience a death that will lead to another death. It's exactly what happened. When Eve talks to the serpent, the Hanefesh, and the Hanefesh is trying to get her to do whatever it is he's trying to get her to do, she says, if I eat it or touch it, I'll drop down dead. That's not what God said. And what was the serpent's response to her? Anybody know? You shall not die as you say. You're not gonna die as you say. You're going to die, just not the way that you say. You're not going to drop down dead. In dying, you will die. And that's what happened. Man experienced the spiritual separation, the spiritual death, the parting of his unity with the Lord, and it ultimately led to a mortal death. Makes sense, doesn't it? No? Nobody? Nobody gets that? Okay. You know, that's really good, Kevin. I just think that's a really good point. That's really deep and profound. It's true. It's there. Mankind rejected their creator. They pushed him away. They became isolated, alone, hid themselves. Suffering enters the world. Life comes from God. God lost, man lost his eternal state with God. And here's where God makes a promise. So I want to share this. In the midst of this darkness, darkness has just entered human existence. In the middle of the darkness, the curtain has just fallen in darkness. In the middle of that, the Lord steps up and makes a promise. <laughs> Do you know why? Because that's who he is. In the middle of darkness is when he makes the promise. I don't care how dark your night is, Jesus has a promise for you. I don't care what you've done to create this darkness, Jesus has a promise for you. He doesn't leave you there. He never leaves you there. God's got a promise for you. Darkness has fallen. It's a mess. I've blown it all up. I've screwed it all up. I'd say Adam screwed that up. Does anybody want to agree? I wish if he, had, if he had probably like a 20-second rewind, if he just had a 20-second rewind, he would rewind that, you know? But he didn't get that. Darkness enters, and here comes the promise. Who is like this? Nobody. Jesus always has a promise, no matter how dark it is. And his promise is hopeful, his promise is life-giving, and his promise is sure. That's a fact. He says, the seed of the woman, he makes the promise. He said, I'm going to put division between you and her. Between your seed and his seed, the seed of the woman. Men, women don't have seed. Men carry the seed. We know that. That's, again, another biology lesson here. Men carry the seed. 
Women don't carry the seed. And so the seed of the woman, what is he prophesying? A woman will be bo- a man will be born through a woman without a man, i.e. virgin. And the one that is born through her, you're going to wound him, but he's going to crush your head. <laughs> you think you won. It's not always going to be like this. You know what God had to do? He had to renew the creation. Adam is the fountainhead of the creation. From him, all of life flows. God created Adam. He created Eve from Adam. And it's like the fountain of a river that comes up and flows. Adam is the fountain of all mankind. All mankind flows back from the fountain of Adam. Adam is now corrupted. His seed is corrupted. God needs to redeem the line of Adam, and he cannot do it because Adam is corrupted. And the enemy thinks he's one. And the Lord's like, well, I'm going to bring another Adam. And I'm going to bring a seed that is incorruptible. And I'm going to bring another bloodline. And I'm going to bring a bloodline that is incorruptible. Born of the blood of Adam. It's the word iniquity. Iniquity, say with me. Iniquity Iniquity. is issues in the bloodline. Right? It's a sin that follows you. That's what Bible uses for the word iniquity. The sin of iniquity is a sin that follows your bloodline. All of us are born in iniquity. We're born with sin in our bloodline because of Adam. That's why we must be born again. We must be born again, not because it's just a cool thing to say. We must be born again because there's iniquity in our bloodline. And we are born by the what of Jesus? The blood of Jesus. Why is the blood significant? Because the blood of Adam is corrupted. In order for man to be born again, he must enter into Christ and receive the blood of Jesus by faith. This is how God designed it. It's crazy. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and then death came to all because all of sin, for the sin was in the world before the law. I'm not going to get into that. I could, but there's a lot more there than I have time for. But death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like Adam. Sin was in the world. Paul's having this argument with these Jews, and they're saying, well, sin entered because of the law. Sin did not, and what he's saying to them is sin did not enter because of the law. The law merely gave you the knowledge of sin, but sin existed from Adam to Moses. Moses gave the law. And so the people that he's arguing with are saying, well, sin is only relevant from from Moses on. And Paul's like, wrong answer. Sin is relevant from the time of Adam. Therefore, as one trespass condemned us all, so one act of righteousness can justify us. So just because Adam is we're condemned in Adam, it means that what Jesus has done, you can move out of that condemnation and into justification. You don't have to stay condemned. You're born in Adam. You are condemned. You are lost. There is no sin that you need to commit that will cause you to be lost. You're already lost apart from Christ. Nothing that you're going to do that's going to condemn you because you're already condemned. And then you come into Christ Jesus. You become born again. And there is therefore now no condemnation. Man is lost. It's not an issue of smoke, drink, and chew. Hang out with those that do. It's not a matter of external acts. It's an issue of birth. You are born lost. And you must be born again. Now the law came to increase the knowledge of sin so that sin reigned, so now that grace will reign in righteousness unto eternal life. Those that are without Christ will be bound to eternity and lost forever in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not a good place to go. Those who reject Christ, those who receive Christ will be given a life that is eternal, a life that begins now and goes on into everlasting life. That's what it's saying. So we have a promise that's been given. And the reason that the promise has been given and the reason that Jesus had to be born of a virgin is because the seed of Adam is corrupted. Corrupted. Look around. Watch the news. The seed of Adam is corrupted. Man is rotten to the core. Greedy, selfish, warmongering, oppressors. It's what we are. Dominating. Dominate each other. He affirms the promise. So he not only makes the promise, he affirms it. Many times in the Old Testament, he affirmed the promise indirectly, but there's a few places in the scripture where God directly confirms this promise and he doesn't blink. In Isaiah chapter seven, we have a king who's, you want to talk about rotten to the core? King Ahaz. King Ahaz is rotten to the core. Evil, wicked king. Know what he did? He barred the doors of the temple and he forbid people from worshiping. Sounds like the governor of California to me barred the doors to the temple, and he forbid the people from worshiping. That's not going on in our day at all, is it? Barred the doors of the temple and forbid the people from worshiping. Ahaz, 
spirit of Ahaz. You want to rebuke something, prayer warriors? You want to rebuke something? You want to bind and loose? Bind and loose the bind the spirit of Ahaz that operates within our government. A dominant, occultic, suppressive spirit. All the abortion clinics are open in California, but the churches aren't. Ahaz. Let me be clear. This is exactly what this guy was doing. He barred the temple. You could burn your children, but you couldn't worship the Lord. You could worship all the gods of the culture, but you couldn't worship the Lord. Ahaz. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. It's getting really bad, so the land's really screwed up, and now the Assyrians are coming, and the northern kingdom, their brothers, have joined an alliance with the Assyrians, and they're coming down to destroy Judah. And God sends the prophet to to Ahaz. (laughs) And the Lord says to Ahaz, I will deliver you if you will do what I say. Now, why would God send the prophet to Ahaz? He didn't do it for Ahaz. He did it for David. Ahaz was a descendant of David. God made no such promise to Ahaz, but he did make a promise to David. And because of David, the Lord was going to honor that promise in spite of Ahaz. Aren't you glad? You should be grateful. Children will be honored in spite of their behavior. God will honor them for the faithfulness of their parents in the preceding generations. God will honor them. And when they come back around, they'll carry a weight that is greater than ever. If Ahab would have repented, everything would have changed, but he didn't repent. And so God's like, look, send the prophet, tell him, listen, don't freak out. Don't start tripping. I know the Assyrians are coming. They're breathing. They're going to burn. They're trying to do all this stuff. They're threatening you. But he says, I'm going to deliver you if you do what I say. And he says, and I want you to ask me for a sign that I'm going to do this. Ask me. So the Lord's going, I'm going to show you. You know why? Because he's saying, I'm about to give you a crazy good deliverance. And I want you to ask me for proof of this crazy good deliverance that I'm about to bring. And you know what Ahaz does? Oh, oh, I could never weary the Lord with such a request. Let me tell you something. If Jesus asks you to ask him for something, that's not the time to blink. You understand that? If the Lord says, ask of me, oh, Lord, oh, well, you know, no, you ask and you go big. Well, I don't want to offend him. Go big. You're not going to offend a big God by going big. Ask him. Go big. I want to sit at your right hand. That's pretty big, right? Go big. That demonstrates faith. Doesn't mean God will say, you want that? Okay, here's the process. I'll give you that. But you're going to have to go through this process. The issue isn't whether I'll give it to you, Kevin. The issue is whether or not you can go through the process to get what I will give you. You will have to go through process. We talk about translation and transformation. We all want to be translated. Destiny requires transformation, not translation. Transformation is a process. Translation is immediate. You come to Christ, you're translated. Darkness to light. You become born again. You begin to walk after the Lord. That's transformation. That's a process. And it's painful. (laughs) God will give it to you. He says, ask me for a sign. Oh, no, I can't ask the Lord for a sign. And the prophet says, okay, you don't want to weary the Lord? The Lord's going to tell you what he's going to do. I will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. What does that have to do with anything that's going on with Ahaz? That sign that God said, he said, this deliverance that I'm about to give you is nothing. Here's the greater sign. The greater sign of my deliverance. This is nothing for me. Let me show you what I'm really going to do. This is the sign of my deliverance. What is it? The virgin birth is the sign of my deliverance. And the one that will be born of a virgin will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Boom, drop the mic. That's pretty much how it went. The word virgin in the Hebrew is halama, right? Halama. And they argue, the critics want to argue, well, halama. It's not even, they use the word alma. It's ha-ama. And ha-ama means the virgin. Not just a virgin, but the virgin. Well, what is the virgin? Mary? No, not Mary. The virgin prophesied in the book of Genesis. That's what he's referencing. The virgin will conceive. What virgin? The virgin, Ha'ama, from the book of Genesis. The virgin that God's prophesied to Eve will conceive. You get the connection? God, will, God made that promise. God is affirming that promise. And God will keep that promise. And they say, well, Ha'ama means just a normal virtuous woman. Yeah, well, they translated Hebrew into Greek about 
roughly about 150 years, somewhere in there, before Christ came. And they took Greek and Hebrew into Greek. They had to have 70 Greek scholars. So it's 70 Hebrew Greek scholars. When they translated the Old Testament into the Greek before Jesus came, they had to agree on every single word. Imagine that. All 70 had to agree on every single word or they couldn't translate it. That's right. And you know what happened when they got to Haomah? There's only one Greek word that means virgin. And do you know what they translated Haomah as? Virgin. Parthenos. There's no question. They're saying, well, the ancient writers, Isaiah wasn't really meaning virgin. Oh, yes, he was. Read the Septuagint. They all knew. The 70 that translated it Haomah into Parthenos, they knew exactly what it meant. And they used the only Greek word that could be used for virgin, Parthenos. Period. Again, Jesus is like, boom, drop the mic. Done. It's like, it's like he dares, it's like you, you're not going to win this argument with the Lord. He, she, he was to be born of the, of the virgin. He, and God not only gives the promise, he, keeps, he affirms the promise, he will keep the promise. And this is what we're going to talk about. Hopefully next week we'll get into this a little bit more. And the promise that he kept was in an acceptable time. And the promise that God has made to you will be in an acceptable time. Many of you have promises. Problem is, is you're on the wrong timetable. You're trying to get Jesus on your clock. He's not on your clock. You need to get on his clock. A guy sent me an email this week telling me how God has failed him. Like, I didn't fail you. Like, tell me where God failed you. Because you quit? Well, two years ago. I'm like, two years ago? What if it takes 20? What if it takes 30? What if you're Caleb and it takes 40? Or Moses? Because he didn't give it to you in two weeks? You think God failed you? Who told you that? If you strength, you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is weak. If God's promised you, he intends to give it to you. But you need to listen to it. He will deliver you, but you have to do what he says. A lot of times these promises have a direct instruction attached to them. We all want the promise, but we don't want the direct instruction. Right? Can I get a witness? We all want the promise, but we don't want the instruction that goes along with the promise. Most of the time, God's intention is to give you what he has promised. Always. But he needs you to follow along. He needs you to cooperate with the process. Who quits? Does Jesus quit? No. We do. Who does the wrong thing? Does Jesus ever do the wrong thing? No. We do. He tells us what to do. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. I don't think there's a reason for me to do that. I'm not going to do that. Okay, fine. Then change your expectation. <laughs> the Bible tells you to do. Change your expectation. If you're double-minded, change your expectation. That's what it says. That's all it tells you. If God says this, but you say that, that's called double-minded. The Lord is saying this, but you're going, no, no, no. I say this. God's like, okay, that's cool. You can say that, but you're double-minded. Change your expectation. Now, don't believe that you're going to get anything from the Lord. That's all it says. Just change your expectation. You can hold your thinking. God said this, I say this. Great. But you're double-minded, and you will not receive from the Lord. You're free to keep your opinion. You're free to keep your mindset. You're free to keep your attitude. You're free to keep it, but you're not going to get what he's promised you because you will not conform to what he has said. It's the way the game's played, people. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. Obedience how? Unto death. Unto death. You will obey if it kills you. Oh, oh, Kevin, this is America. We don't talk like that. Christianity's about popcorn and pinwheels and, you know, cotton candy and a best life now and a champion forever. Don't talk to me about sacrifice. Don't talk to me about commitment. This is America. Crickets. All the people need to be born again in an acceptable time. Galatians, when the fullness of the time had come, in the fullness of the time, he will answer you. In the fullness of the time. If you've done what he has asked you, and he is key, will affirm that promise to you. If you've done what you've asked, Lord, are you going to do this? I told you I was going to do it. When are you going to do it? He may not tell you when, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I could tell you stories. I have lots of testimonies on that. In an acceptable time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, virgin born, New Testament, Old Testament, Genesis, all the way through, virgin born, to redeem those who are under law that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters. What was his intention? Was his intention to bring you back to himself and make you slaves? Is his intention to bring you back to himself and make you servants? Tells us what his intention was, to bring you back to himself and give you full rights of inheritance as sons and daughters. Why did he do it? To bring the sons and daughters home. 
to bring us back to himself. Those that would be willing, he would give us back our right of inheritance with full rights on day one. Full rights. Son and daughter, now. Son and daughter. To those that receive Christ, they're the only ones who have the ability to be called the sons and daughters of God. In Christ, you're a daughter of the highest. You're a son of the highest. Don't lower yourself. Don't you ever lower yourself beneath the standard that Jesus paid blood to give you. Don't you walk around with your head down. Don't you walk around all sallow. Don't you walk around like feeling defeated. You may feel defeated, but you're not. You're a daughter of the highest. You're a son of the highest. No one has the right to diminish you. No one has the right to lower you beneath the standard that God has established for you. And you know what? You don't have the right to lower you beneath. He says you're a son. Did you say you're a son? I didn't say I'm a son. He tells me I'm a son. He tells me I'm an heir of this world and in the one to come. I didn't say that. I didn't even put a resume in for that. All I was looking for was salvation and freedom from my sin. And he doubles down on me and says, you're a son. You're an heir. You're an heir of my kingdom. You're an heir in this world and the, king, and the one to come. Enter into the kingdom that was, presented to you, was prepared for you before the foundations of the earth. That's what Jesus will say to the sons and daughters. Who's he giving the kingdom to? The sons and daughters. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord and into the kingdom that was prepared for you for the foundation of the world. I'm an heir in this world. I have the spirit of God. I have absolute and total authority. 100%, 100%, 100%. The devil's not in charge. I am. The, the, the lowliest, the new, newborn Christian with the most inkling of an anointing has more authority than the entire kingdom of darkness. <laughs> Period. I'm an heir of this world. And I am an heir of the one to come, and so are you. Rise to the level of your birth, Christian. Rise to the level of your birth. Rise to the level of your birth. Stop living a diminished life. It's not about your circumstances. It's about your attitude. You need to tell yourself in the mirror, man. I tell you all the time. I am a son of the highest and born of the blood of Jesus. I'm about my father's business. My will means nothing. His will means everything. I intentionally program my head and my heart. I program my heart. My heart will not go any other way but that way. Period. Period. <laughs> I am absolutely committed and devoted to such a cause. And you have to do, and how do you get there? You have to program yourself. You have to tell yourself. If you don't tell you, no one's going to tell you. You know how hard it was in the beginning when I started telling myself a son of the highest? That pastor's going, well, who do you think? What? Yeah, what? What? Why do you, we talk like that. Because I am. I don't care if you know who you are. I know who I am. Just because you don't know who you are, that doesn't mean anything to me. I know who I am. And I will not vacate my position because you don't like it. I know who I am, and I know what I am, and I will not vacate. It's exactly what the devil got Adam to do was vacate. It's exactly what he's trying to get Jesus to do was vacate. If you are the son of God, he's trying to get you to vacate your position. Refuse. I refuse. I will not even allow myself. I'm like, you're not, you know, whatever. I'm like, no, dude, that's not how it's going down. It's going down like this. Born again, man. All people need light. If you're out there and you're watching and you don't know Jesus, today's your day. Christ is the light of the world, and that life is life. You are hopeless and helpless without him. You are born broken, and you are born into a broken world. The Bible says all have sinned. That's you, and that's me. And because I have sinned, and because you have sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God. That's God's goodness. The Bible says the wages of that sin... Or the, the price that we're going to have to pay because of that separation is, is death, eternal separation. But the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. God is offering you an opportunity to come back. The virgin birth is about Jesus coming for you, dying as you, so that you could come unto him. And he is offering you that today. The Bible says the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. If you believe in your heart, remember, you don't have to understand it. If you believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead. The Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be born again. The Holy Spirit will come into you. He will renew you. He'll make all things new. You'll be translated. Maybe not everything in your world is going to change, but spiritually your position is going to shift. You will come out of darkness and into light. What do I got to do? The Bible says pray. We're going to pray here as a church. We're going to pray as a family. And we want to pray with you at home. We want to encourage you. Pray. 
Open your mouth. Confess with your mouth. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, you I will deny before my Father. There's no such thing as a closet Christian. You have to come out and be numbered. We wear armor. We don't wear camouflage. And so I encourage you to wear it. We're going to say a prayer and pray with us. And Elevate here is going to pray with you. And let's pray. 60 seconds of your life that will change your eternity starting now. Just say, dear Jesus. I believe that you are the Savior. I believe you came, you died, and you rose again for me. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name. If you did that, we celebrate with you. The angels of God celebrate with you. Hit us up in the messenger. Send us an email. We'd love to connect with you more. We want to bless you. And so we're going to say one more blessing, and then we're going to close. And so this is a blessing that God commanded over the people in the book of Exodus. He told them, every time the people are dismissed, say these words. If it's good enough for Aaron, it's good enough for me. So we're going to say it. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. I tried to find you. Lost my way. Walked in the darkness in search of day. Don't you vacate that identity.